Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharat Vartha Weekly. You're watching a premiere on YouTube. If this is your first time to the podcast, uh, we publish uh, episodes on politics, policy and culture. Two or more episodes every week. Uh, do follow and subscribe for more content like this. If you are a returning visitor and you like the content that uh, we produce, uh, don't forget to rate and review us so more people can discover our content. So I have uh, Abhishek Nirav uh, with me. Uh, to run you through the news and events of the week that was and it's been a pretty eventful week i should say uh, the australian parliament has approved the free trade agreement with india then there were a few interesting comments by the home minister uh, mr amit shah at the times now summit uh, there was also an initiative to launch 400 new vande bharat trains that was announced then there were riots at the largest iphone factory in china and of course uh, we're going to bring you some of the action that's been happening at the fifa world cup in qatar so before we get on with the news and events, uh, let's talk about the episode that we put out uh, last week. It's uh, doing fairly well. A lot of positive reviews and comments. Nirav, what do you think about the episode with uh, Professor Salvatore Babonis? Yeah, so it was very interesting. When he talks about like India being the most successful democracy for its level of income and having almost 75 years of uninterrupted democracy with peaceful change in power, with multiple parties, etc. So unlike the ratings, the reality on the ground is something very different. And two is he said what the methodology of the ratings is. And he explained all the different groups. So economist intelligence unit, uh, whether it's the US State Department, etc, etc. They're ranking all the countries and they're putting India just a little bit above Myanmar is because they conduct a survey. And then the survey is conducted by like a few academics in like a few institutions. So very self selecting. It's a very biased sample. And uh, they are using references from even pre 2014. They take that, oh, like a, a dissident was jailed for sedition, but the, oh, that happened in pre 2014, in 2010, or something of that sort, right? So you are taking wrong samples and then trying to prove a point and how this kind of changes the perception, how this is used to uh, change Wikipedia pages. I think Professor. Uh, Salvatore Babones has gotten a lot of media attention in India and now his Wikipedia page is also being vandalized. So I think that's some measure of like success or at least like his sudden uh, spurt in popularity. But uh, nevertheless, it's like a great episode, very timely as well. And uh, no, I think Roshan, you did a fantastic job of asking all the relevant questions and uh, definitely worth a listen. Yeah, I think all of the the obvious questions were taken by all the many people who interviewed him before. So I had to dig a little deeper, I should say. So Abhishek, I mean, any highlights from the conversation that you want to recollect? Yeah, so I would say that if you have listened to him before, then also as an audience, you can watch this and gain more insights. And if you haven't listened to him in the past, then also it's a great introduction to uh, Professor Babones, right? So for me, I think the highlight was when we discuss what is exceptional about India's intellectuals or if there is anything like that, right? And I think he very well explained that, look, what is happening is that there are two ways in which intellectuals are assimilated in society, right? One is where they are part of the ruling governing class, right? Whether it is India before 2014 or let's say the Scandinavian countries and so on, right? Where the intellectuals are very much part of the ruling coalition, the ruling class, and they feel valued and therefore they endorse the democracy that they are part of. On the other hand, India post-2014 is like a place where the intellectuals feel they are not part of the ruling power structures and therefore, you know, they are coming out against the government and sometimes consequently 
against the country in quite a vehement way. And it is these intellectuals who are in the top institutions like the universities and think tanks and NGOs and so on. And obviously, the credentialed intellectual class is what the foreign countries, the rating agencies of foreign countries will go to and they will give this kind of a picture which is quite anti-government and anti-India right now. Yeah. And I should say on my part that, you know, I've interviewed many eminent uh, people on the podcast. I should say Professor Babunas was uh, one of the most humble people that I've hosted, right? He was such a pleasure to talk to, absolutely no airs about himself. And in that sense, you know, what he, whatever he said on the podcast about intellectuals needing to have that humility because uh, their salaries are literally paid by taxpayers, I think he really lives that, right? So, you know, more power to him. Hopefully we'll have him back in about three to four months time, right? And give him some time to grade his papers and get on with the university work uh, for the time being. All right, uh, first piece of news uh, is from where uh, Professor Babanis uh, hails from. Uh, the Australian Parliament has approved the free trade agreement with India. On Tuesday, the Parliament approved the FTA inked with India in April, paving the way for the rollout of the pact on a mutually agreed date, January 2023. The agreement will provide duty-free access to Indian exporters of over 6,000 broad sectors, including textiles, leather, furniture, jewelry, and machinery in the Australian market. Nira, we've referenced this uh, FTA a couple of times before. Uh, it's heartening to see that, you know, despite a change in government, right, with the Labour government uh, at the centre right now, there is a lot of focus on expediting this, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I think there's a good thing. The India-Australia relationship has some sort of a bipartisan support. Also, it is for Australia is trying to reduce its dependence on China. Uh, there's a little bit backstory there as well. So Australian government, they made a couple of statements about the origins of COVID virus and whether it was a lab leak or whether the Chinese government knew earlier about it, etc. Right. So the Chinese got very upset and then they increased duties on a lot of Australian products, which actually hurt Australian exporters. And Australia itself is like too intertwined with China right now because they buy a lot of manufactured goods from China and they sell a lot of raw materials. Predominantly iron ore and coal. Second thing is that Australia and India are also very complementary and culturally predominantly because of cricket. But a lot of Australians are familiar with India. They know India. They know Indian cities, etc. Right? And uh, both are ex-British colonies. English being like a common link language. That has also helped. Australia is a large country in size, but very small population. Very natural resources heavy. India is like large population. Is has a lot of potential to raise its manufacturing capabilities and lacks the raw materials what Australia has. So I think it's a very complementary relationship. So few things would change, right? So I think about like 96.4% of Indian goods will be exempt from duty when exported to Australia. It helps on the low-end manufacturing in India. So that kind of like textile, leather, furniture, jewelry, machinery, a lot of that. Australia is quite a rich country. Labor is very expensive. So those they have to import. So maybe now India becomes a better avenue for them. For a lot of Indian people with STEM degrees and like or with master's degrees in non-STEM fields, you will get access with a longer term working visa easier. So I think it's easier movement of labor. Obviously, I think India will also allow Australians, but not a lot of Australians unless they're in sports media or something want to come and work in India. But that is another two-way thing. Lastly, Piyush uh, Goel said like, and this is like a realistic thing. India right now exports per year. $8.3 billion worth of goods to Australia, right? And imports about 16 or $17 billion worth of goods. So that total trade is about 8 plus 17, about 25 billion a year, which is very small. So India exports, total exports are 400 billion, right? Uh, total imports are about uh, 700. So this is very small. 
uh, they are looking to double it by f- within five years. So that's one thing. Basically, this kind of kickstarts India's manufacturing revolution. Uh, hopefully, you've spoken a lot about it. India is slowly and steadily chipping away some of the share of uh, China's manufacturing exports, right? So that's also a good thing. It also helps to have Australia as a part of like the military alliance squad. So I think this is also there. Australia is part of AUKUS with the US and UK, and they want to reduce reliance on China. So I think a lot of things are playing. India has a lot of tailwinds, and India has to make the most of it. Now that we signed the FTA. We need to make the most of it and we need to leverage that the access that we have to this market. Hopefully that we can deliver on those exports or maybe like a Vietnam or an Indonesia, somebody else will also take over because Indonesia has also signed a free trade agreement with Australia. So Australia is eager to sign FTAs to reduce dependence on China. And another one which is being worked on, UK is trying to sign FTAs to reduce its dependence on EU. So I think both these cases, India has to not only meet them somewhere in between to try and uh, agree on the terms. And now that we have access, try to leverage it and become an export powerhouse, hopefully like China. So it's very hard thing. Yeah, Indonesia does have the upper hand in terms of access, right? I mean, they're three, four hours away, I think, from Australia. And hopefully we'll but see they, the... Uh, they don't have the... They don't have the IT skill sets to like export IT services. And they have the same coal and uh, iron ore is what Australia has. But they have coal and nickel. That's what Indonesia has. So both are similar countries. I think like India and Australia are complementary countries. So... That might help India. Great. Yeah, so hopefully, I mean, the UK FTA uh, comes through as well. Well, closer home, the Union Home Minister Amit Shah uh, attended the Times Now Summit in Delhi on Thursday and made some big remarks on several issues ranging from the implementation of CAA, NRC, Uniform Civil Court, Places of Worship Act, upcoming Gujarat elections, uh, and so on and so forth. I'll let Abhishek recap a few of these uh, comments. Uh, Abhishek, over to you. Yeah, so the Home Minister basically talked about why the CA and RC had not yet been implemented. And he basically said that, no, they have not been put in the cold freezer, but rather the delay is due to reasons such as, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, etc. And so he expects that very soon rules will be framed for the implementation of CANRC. That was one topic. Then he talked about the Article 370 abrogation from Jammu and Kashmir. He called it a sort of collaborative and collective victory for the BJP and the government and the cabinet rather than looking at it as an individual achievement for him as a home minister. So, and then he basically talked about how things have improved in Jammu and Kashmir since then, right? In terms of panchayat elections or uh, increased tourism, reduced terrorism and so on. Then he talked about the Uniform Civil Code. He basically said that states have the time till 2024 to work on it and start implementation at a state level. And post-2024, if the states do not work on it, then the center would look at it. For now, he said that BJP governments in Himachal, Uttarakhand and Gujarat have started the work on it, right? By setting up panels and starting off consultations at the state level. Then he talked about the upcoming uh, Gujarat elections. He said basically that he expects the BJP to, you know, get a record victory there. He kind of dismissed the chances of the Ahmadmi party from doing anything big there and he basically said that Congress is the main opposition to the BJP there in Gujarat and finally I think he talked about few other political battles going on right he sort of blasted Rahul Gandhi for his uh, unfortunate statements on Veer Savarkar and he also said basically it he commented on some of the ongoing drama with the Ahmadmi party and its minister 
who is in jail, Satyendra Jain, right? Who's some of his uh, videos from jail were uh, circulating in the media last week. So he basically had some comments regarding that. So yeah, these were the, I think, the highlights for me from his talk there. Yeah, I think a couple of other things that he mentioned as well. He commented on the Places of Worship Act, uh, saying that ahead of the December 12th uh, deadline set by the Supreme Court for the Centre to spell out its stand on the Places of Worship Act 1991, he stated that no law is above judicial scrutiny. Moving on, violent clashes erupted between workers and security personnel at the world's largest iPhone factory in central China's Zhengzhou city early on Wednesday, with employees living under tough COVID-19 restrictions for weeks, breaking barricades and rushing out of the premises. Footage circulating on social media shows bloodied and agitated workers raising slogans, forcing their way out of barricades and violent fights between security personnel and workers. Dubbed the iPhone city, the plant in Zhengzhou has been operating in a closed-loop bubble for several weeks amid complaints that wages have not been paid regularly and workers have not been allowed to leave the premises. Nirav, this is pretty unfortunate, right? I mean, uh, the zero-COVID policy continues to persist. Uh, you know, what do you make of this? Yeah, so basically in Zhengzhou, they have 200,000 employees there. And what has happened is because of zero-COVID, all the workers' dorms which are next to the factory, that's a cordon of zone. So you can't get in and out only from factory to the dorm and dorm to factory, right? So you're in a closed loop and inside the factories, just for like no dust, etc., they're always wearing PPE even before COVID or whatever, right? That is the kind of environment that you're working in. And uh, what had happened was, I think there were some COVID cases in one dorm and people were shifted to another dorm and that kind of triggered the protests. The people are worried about their own safety. And uh, after this, what has happened is that there's been a lot of violence. It looks like squid games, basically. Instead of the red uniform, they're wearing those white PPE kits, the riots and people fighting around. But what has happened is about 20,000, so they've given an offer. Anybody wants to leave and then go home to their hometown, uh, they can get and they get a one-time payment of about like a month's wages. So which is about uh, 10,000 yuan, about like 1 lakh rupees. So they've let that happen. 10% of the staff is leaving because they're worried about their own safety or mental health or being locked inside like the iPhone campus. They've also raised their wages a bit, right? So I think they're taking some steps. But now this is an iPhone assembly factory run by Foxconn, which assembles iPhones, right? Look at it from Foxconn or Apple's perspective. It made sense to have one location with 200,000 employees. Everybody's working hard. Everything is centralized. It gives you the most efficiency. But what if there is something going wrong there? Then you can't meet all your demand, right? So you have to go from like just in time to just in case. And now Foxconn and then there are other two, uh, Vistron and Pegatron, other Taiwanese companies, which are also put up a few Apple assembly plants in India, right? So one is there are like clashes between like China and Taiwan. So anyways, Foxconn needs to think about hedging itself. They're also trying to build up uh, some iMac assembly plants in the US. They're, they're trying to assemble iPhones in India, iPhone 14. Aim is to reach 25% of production from India. But this event, what it should do is accelerate that process, right? Whether it is India, whether it is Vietnam or Mexico or some other place. I think having all your eggs in one basket was probably the last couple of decades strategy. It was everything is so stable, nothing is there. You put all your eggs in one basket, there's no tremors. So none of them are going to crack. It's, it's the best, it's the cheapest alternative. But now in a volatile world with a lot of things moving, it's an unwise strategy. So I think that is what's going to happen. Hopefully, for the sake of people of China, I think hopefully that they do exit zero COVID. 
but it is going to be very slow. The good thing about India having 400,000 COVID cases a day at the peak was that almost everybody got COVID and everybody moved on. And even though the Western media talks a lot about mRNA vaccines, but India had traditional vaccines which just worked fine. So I think that was, you have to have effective vaccination and you got herd immunity by infection, right? So that was a good thing. China, even now, it's reached its all-time high and it is like 33, 34,000 cases. So for a country with similar population, the total amount of time, I think COVID, you have to have a burn-through strategy. That's what probably it's shown. With effective vaccination, it's just that our infection is milder. So if you don't allow the cases to erupt too soon, you will have to hold these tight conditions for longer till you get herd immunity. So maybe that's using arithmetic, it's like 10 times as long, right? Because you're not going to that many cases. So I think that is there. But for iPhone, it's very much negative publicity that you're having such riots in your factory, right? In the US or rest of the world. For Foxconn, it is also a problem. If I'm supposed to deliver so much, can I rely only on one location? So I think those things are going to come out and uh, hopefully like India stands to benefit from this. It's a sad thing for the people of China, right? But I'm saying that there is this kind of an opportunity, this kind of rearrangement in the global manufacturing ecosystem. So I think this is, and India has to actually make a play. I think it's going to be very disheartening if despite all these things, India doesn't do that well, right? So I think I want to be optimistic, but also want to be realistic that sometimes India has messed it up when things were lining up for itself. So hopefully we don't miss the boat this time. Right. Just another point on the zero COVID policy, right? I mean, why do you think they're still persisting with this? Do they know something about long COVID that, you know, perhaps we don't know? Or See, something I think... Sort? So a couple of things, few things is like kind of saving face. Earlier, they said that look at China, that China managed it so well and look at the West where so many people are dying. And they've kept criticizing that in the US, 1 million people died, 1 million people died. Whereas we care for our people. So now they cannot like actually go take a U-turn. Two, in other countries where Sinopharm and Sinovac were also administered, right? In the rest of the world, in a lot of Latin American countries, in Dubai, etc., like just pure evidence-based thing that they are less effective, especially for a milder stage like Omicron, right? So the vaccine is less effective and probably the Chinese authorities know it and they're trying to develop their own mRNA vaccine. I don't know. I think like if, if I were Chinese, I would just take Punawala's Serum Institute or Bharat Biotech's vaccine and just administer it quickly. But obviously they won't do it. So again, the saving phase, you cannot show that you're wrong. So you double down on the strategy. Lastly, like this is where democracy is actually are effective. In another country, once the people decide that I'm okay getting sick, but now I don't want my freedoms curbed or I, I need to go out and make a living, then the politicians react to that because they know, okay, now people want this instead of this. I turn tack and like I deliver that, right? We're listening to the people. In China, that's not the case. So they don't want to. They have their own internal reports, which they believe that uh, if that they were to let COVID run through, they have four times the population of the US and, slight, and a worse healthcare system they might actually have 10 million deaths, which might not be acceptable right, to the population. So like one crore deaths for a country of 140 crores, it's like almost 0.7% of the population. right? Uh, they have a higher percentage of older population and a lot of the older population are anti-vaxxers or they don't want to get vaccinated. So they are not vaccinated. So it is a complex situation there and uh, they seem to be trying to double down. All I'm saying is that the world is too dependent on China. It's too reliant on China. And now these decisions, what China makes is affecting the rest of the world as well, right? If it is harming your supply chain, etc. Actually, China has done a great job to try and keep the manufacturing ecosystem functioning well. They've cordoned off factories. All the factories have their worker dorms. All those are cordoned off. 
they've kind of had like clean routes where like bus flies between the two or whatever they despite that they've got record exports what not the domestic part of the economy has suffered a lot but this could also as these riots showed right this could also escalate further so it is for the rest of the world to realize if china makes a wrong step or a mistake it affects me so then i need to diversify away because i can't change their government i can't change the way they think so i need to be resilient and uh, need to so maybe people are saying so the key events probably to watch out is there's chinese new year end of jan and maybe in march when the winter is over where flu is more flu or covid or is more uh, deadly i think after that when the warmer climate comes in maybe they might ease but we don't see any sort of easing of covid restrictions till then all right in more optimistic news uh, the finance minister uh, ms nirmala sitaraman on tuesday announced that 400 new vande bharat trains will be introduced and the railways will also develop new products for small farmers and msmes uh, she added that 100 pm gati shakti terminals would also be set up in the next 3 years with cargo terminals for multimodal logistics facilities one station one product concept will be popularized to help local businesses and supply chains she said abhishek this seems like a, a fantastic initiative how do you think this will be significant for india yeah so it looks like the announcement is on top of the 400 that were already announced in the previous budget so i think there are reports that the outlay for the railways in the union budget 2023 24 will go even beyond the 1.35 lakh crore that was provided in the previous budget right and so it basically look uh, seems that you know india is looking at really expanding the railways in, for the long term right that would mean laying additional 100000 kilometers of tracks and you know many new trains even for the vande bharat right now it's primarily a chair car train right so i think there are reports that very soon uh, sleeper coaches will also be part of vande bharat at the same time even the standard gauge version of the vande bharat will come out right right now it's probably only running in the broad gauge tracks right and so uh, there's also talk of you know the vande bharat trains getting exported to buyers uh, in europe south america and east asia so i think there's a lot of uh, possibility for you know good things we have to remember that this vande bharat is probably the let's say the first new brand of trains india has launched in a very long time right i mean we had the rajdhani and the shatabdi and after that there has been a big lull right in terms of india there have been some budget category of uh, transport but vande bharat is a much more ambitious program of trains right and so Uh, yeah i think uh, hopefully you know all this what is important is that you know these trains get built up in time right because that will also demonstrate a good manufacturing capabilities within india and so yeah i think things are looking up here on this front and hopefully uh, we get uh, these trains rolled out throughout the country very soon yeah railways are like the nerve center for logistics in india and so yeah this uh, could be a really interesting initiative and finally let's talk about fifa uh, right we had a few interesting results uh, after saudi arabia beat uh, argentina we had yet another upset japan beat germany well you know a lot of folks thought that germany were favorites to win the world cup uh, they haven't uh, started the world cup on a very good note and then we had senegal beating qatar and so on in fact the saudi government has uh, Uh, apparently gifted rolls royces to each player on the team right wow that's amazing uh, and they Portugal... announced a holiday immediately on the next day <laughs> yeah exactly but that was a that was amazing match actually yeah i mean uh, they played really well props to them 
Portugal won against uh, Ghana. With that, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo becomes the first person in history to score a goal in five different FIFA World Cups. Contrast that with uh, Lionel Messi. There are fans on both sides. Uh, make of that what you will. Ecuador and Netherlands were tied and uh, so did England and USA. It was a nil-nil uh, draw. Uh, Nirav, Abhishek, uh, care to comment on you know what results we've seen so far? Uh, any trends or you know where do you think the wind is blowing? So one, okay, trying to get a trend, right? Like while the stadiums are air-conditioned, I think that's more for the fans. By the time you reach the pitch, probably it's still hot. The Saudi versus Argentina game was at 1 p.m. in the afternoon in Qatar, right? So Qatar and Saudi are similar weather. So you would expect Saudi to have an upper advantage, almost as if they're playing at home, right? So that kind of tip may be in Saudi's favor. Argentina scored the early goal, but like as time where it goes on and like it gets a bit too hot. So I think the Middle Eastern teams, uh, that is Saudi and Iran might uh, provoke a couple of surprises. And I've mentioned earlier as well that South American teams no longer play that well as a team because a lot of them, a lot of the top stars play in the European leagues and they are not as used to playing as a team together. So that is something. Uh, France, having won the last World Cup, they still have very much a similar team and they're a very young team. So maybe they're doing well. It was sad to see Germany lose, but also good. These surprises is what makes it interesting. And uh, lastly, I'm just surprised with the number of 0-0 draws or the 1-1 draws, right? There have been a lot of draws in this World Cup so far. Usually in the league stage, teams play attacking and try and score goals early. And usually in the knockout stages where it all goes to a draw and then a penalty shootout decides the winner. So I think uh, one of the things maybe I'm a little bit surprised is the number of draws. But anyway, it's an interesting World Cup. Still early stages. Let's see. Yeah, so we have a Poland and Saudi Arabia match coming up today, uh, which is Saturday. And then we also have Tunisia versus Australia coming up as well. Let us know if we should do a special uh, Bharatwarta podcast on the FIFA World Cup. Maybe, I mean, as things progress, we should uh, definitely consider that. That brings us to the end of the Bharatwarta weekly for this week. Uh, thank you again, you know, for tuning in. Please rate and review us on all of your podcast platforms. It helps more people discover content. Uh, we have a couple of interesting uh, podcasts lined up. We have uh, one with author Deepthi Navratna. She's written this amazing uh, book called The Maverick Maharaja based on Jaicham Rajendra Vadiar. Check that out. Vivek Khetan will be hosting her. And we also have a very interesting podcast with uh, a guy called Nitin Jairaj. Uh, he goes by the Instagram handle The Shredded Farmer. And he practices with a lot of Indian uh, weight training uh, fitness equipment, right? Like the Mukdar and the Gada. I am particularly interested in talking to him about, you know, how he got started on this whole, uh, you know, ancient fitness and stuff like that. A very cool Instagram page. Do check it out. Uh, let us know if we should host uh, anyone in particular or any topic that we should cover. Until next time, from uh, Abhishek Neerav and myself, uh, stay safe, take care and Jai Hind.